0: Section three of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three, chapters nine through twelve. Chapter nine, continuation of Karl's narrative. That was a terrible time, Nikolinka," continued Karl Ivanitch, "the time of Napoleon. He wanted to conquer Germany." And we protected our vaterland to the last trap of plot. Me at Ulm, me at Austerlitz, me at Wagram. Did you really fight? I asked with a gaze of astonishment. Did you really kill anybody? Karl instantly reassured me on this point. Once one French grenadier was left behind and fell to the ground, I sprang forwards with my gun, and were about to kill him. Aber der Franzose wort sein Gewehr hin un rief. Pardon, and I let him loose. At Wagram Napoleon cut us open, and surrounded us in such a way as there was no helping. Three days had we no provisions, and stood in the water up to the knees the evil napoleon neither let us go loose nor catched us on the fourth day they took us prisoners thank god and sent us to one fortress upon me was one blue trousers uniforms of very good clothes fifteen of tallers and one silver clock which my vater had given me the france soldaten Took from me everything, for my happiness there was three ducats on me, which my mamma had sewn in my shirt of flannel. Nobody found them. I liked not long to stay in the fortresses and resoluted to run away. Van day, van pig holiday, says I to the sergeant which had to look after us, Mister sergeant, to day is a pig holiday and me wants to celebrate it. Bring here, if you please, two bottle Matera, and we shall drink them with each other. And the sergeant says, Gut When the sergeant bring de matira, and we drink it out to the last drop, I taked his hunt and says, Mr. Sergeant, perhaps you have still one vater and one mutter? He says, So I have, Mr. Mayor my vater and mutter not seen me eight year. I goes on to him, and say no not if I am yet alive or if my bones be reposing in the grave. O, oh, Mr. Sergeant, I have two tuckets, which is in my shirt of flannel. Take them, and let me loose. You will be my benefactor, and my mutter will be praying for you all her life to the Almighty God." The sergeant emptied his glass of matira and says, Mr. Mayor, I laugh and pity you very much, but you is one prisoner, and I one soldier. So I take his hand, and says, Mr. Sergeant, and the sergeant says, You is one poor man, and I will not take your money, but I will help you. Then I go to sleep, buy one pail of pranti, for de soldaten and they will sleep. Me will not look after you. This was one good man. I put the pail of pranti, and when the Sotatin was drunken, me dressed in one old coat, and gang in silence out of the doon. I go to the wall, and will leap down, but there is water below, and I will not spoil my last dressing, so I go to the gate. The sentry go up and down with one gun, and look at me. Who goes there? And I was silent. Who goes there the second time? And I was silent. Who goes there the third time? And I run away, I sprang in the water, climb up to the other side, and walk on. The entire night I run on the way, but when daylight came, I was afraid that they would catch me, and I hit myself in the high corn. There I kneelt down, zanket the water in heaven for my safety, and fall asleep was a tranquil feeling. I wakened up in the evening, and gang further. At once one large German carriage, with two raven-black horse, came alongside me. In the carriage sit one well-dressed man, smoking pipe, and look at me. I go slowly. So that the carriage shall have time to pass me, but I go slowly, and the carriage goes slowly, and the man look at me, I go quick, and the carriage go quick, and the man stop its two horses, and look at me. Young man, says he, where go you so late? I says, I go to Frankfurt. Sit in the carriage, there is room enough, and I will track you, he says. But why have you nosing about you? Your boots is dirty, and your beard not shaven. I seated with him, and says, Ich bin one poor man, and I would like to pussy myself with something in a manufactory. My tressing is dirty because I fell in the mud on the road." "'You tell me untruths, young man,' says he. "'The road is quite dry now.' I was silent. "'Tell me the whole truth,' goes on the good man who you are, and where you go to. I like your face, and ven you is one honest man, so I will help you. And I tell all. Good, young man, he says, come to my manufactory of rope, and I will give you work, and dress, and money, and you can live with us. I says good. I go to the manufactory of rope, and the good man says to his woman, Here is one young man who defended his waterland, and ran away from prisons, he has not house nor tresses nor preet. He will live with us, give him clean linen, and nourish him. I lived one and a half year in the manufactory of rope, and my landlord loved me so much that he would not let me loose, and I felt very good. I was then handsome man, young, of pig stature, with blue eyes, and Romish nose, and Mrs. L.—I like not to say her name—she was a woman of my landlord—was young and handsome lady, and she fell in love with me." Here Karl Ivanitch made a long pause, lowered his kindly blue eyes, shook his head quietly, and smiled as people always do under the influence of a pleasing recollection. "'Yes,' he resumed as he leant back in his armchair and adjusted his dressing-gown, I have experienced many things in my life, but there is my witness—here he pointed to an image of the Saviour, embroidered on wool, which was hanging over his bed—that nobody in the world can say that Carl Ivanitch has been one dishonest man. I would not repay black ingratitude for the goot which Mr. L. did me, and I resoluted to run away. So in the evening, when all were asleep, I write it one letter to my landlord, and laid it on the table in his room. Then I taked my tresses, tree-taller of money, and go mysteriously into the street. Nobody have seen me, and I go on ze rote. CHAPTER X CONCLUSION OF CARL'S NARRATIVE I had not seen my mamma for nine year and i know not whether she lived or whether her bones had long since lain in ze dark grave then i come to my own country and go to ze town i ask where live gustav Meyer, who was farmer to ze count von zomerblatt and say answer me graf zomerblatt is dead and gustav Meyer live now in ze pig street and keep a public house so i tress in my new waistcoat and one noble coat which the manufacturist presented me, arranged my hairs nice, and go to ze public-house of my papa. Sister Marishan was sitting on a bench, and she asked me what I want. I says, might I drink one glass of brandy? And she says, Vater, here is a young man who wished to drink one glass of brandy. And papa says, give him ze glass. I set to the table drink my glass at Branty, smoke my pipe, and look at Papa, Marischen, and Johann, who also come into ze shop. In ze conversation, Papa says, You know, perhaps, young man, where stands our army? And I say, I myself am come from ze army, and it stands now at Ruyen. Our son, says Papa, is a soldat, and now is it nine years since he wrote never one word and we know not whether he is alive or dead. My woman cry continually for him. I still fumigate the pipe, and say,—'What was your son's name, and where served he? Perhaps I may know him. His name was Carl Mayer, and he served in the Austrian Jagers. He were of pig stature, and a handsome man like yourself,' puts in Maryshen. I say, I know your Carl. Amalia, exclaimed my vater, come here. Here is young man, which knows our Carl, and my dear mutter comes out from a back door. I knew her directly. You know our Karl," says she, and looks at me, and white all over trembles. Yes, I have seen him, I says, without ze courage to look at her, for my heart did almost burst. My Karl is alive, she cry. "Zentank got, God! Where is he, my Carl? I would die in peace if I could see him once more, my darling son. But God will not have it so." Then she cried, and I could no longer stand it. "'Darling Mama,' I say, "'I am your son, I am your Karl,' and she fell into my arms. Karl Ivanitch covered his eyes, and his lips were quivering. "'Mutter,' sagte ich, "'ich bin ihr Son, ich bin ihr Karl, und sie die mir in die Armee he repeated, recovering a little, and wiping the tears from his eyes. But God did not wish me to finish my days in my own town. I were pursuit by fate. I lived in my own town only three months. One Sunday I sit in a coffee-house, and drink it one pint of peer, on fumigated my pipe, and speak it with some friends of politic, of the Emperor Franz, of Napoleon, of the war, and anybody might say his opinion but next to us sits a strange gentleman in a grey uberach, who drink coffee, fumigate the pipe, and says nothing. When the night-watchman shout at ten o'clock, I taked my hat, paid ze money, and go home. At ze middle of ze night, someone knock at ze door. I rise, and says, Who is there?" Open, says someone. I shout again. First say, Who is there, and I will open. Open in the name of the law say someone behind the door. I now do so. Two soldaten with guns stand at the door, and into the room steps the man in the grey Ubarak who had sat with us in the coffee-house. He were spying. Come with me, says the spyin. Very good, I say. I dressed myself in boots, trousers, and coat, and goes through the room. Then I come to the wall where my gun hangs, I take it, and says, you are a spion, so defend you. I give one stroke left, one right, and one on the head. The spion lay precipitated on the floor. Then I taked my cloak-bag and money, and jumped out of the window. I went to Ems, where I was acquainted with one General Sassin, who loved me, giv me a passport from the Embassy, and taked me to Russland to learn his children. Then General Sasin tied. Your mamma called for me and says, Carl Avanich, I give you my children. Love them, and I will never leave you and will take care of your old age. Now she is dead, and all is forgotten. For my twenty year full of service, I must now go into the street and seek for a dry crust of bread for my old age. God sees all this, and knows all this. His holy will be done. Only only I yearn for you, my children, and Karl drew me to him and kissed me on the forehead. Chapter Eleven. One mark only the year of mourning over, Grandmamma recovered a little from her grief and once more took to receiving occasional guests, especially children of the same age as ourselves, on the thirteenth of December, Lubotshka's birthday, The Princess Kornikoff and her daughters, with Madame. Velakin, Stonechka, Ilinka Grapp, and the two younger twins, arrived at our house before luncheon. Though we could hear the sounds of talking, laughter, and movements going on in the drawing-room, we could not join the party until our morning lessons were finished. The table of studies in the schoolroom said, Lundi. De deux à trois maîtres d'histoire et de géographie. And this infernal maître d'histoire we must await. Listen to, and see the back of, before we could gain our liberty. Already it was twenty minutes past two, and nothing was to be heard of the tutor, nor yet anything to be seen of him in the street, although I kept looking up and down it with the greatest impatience, and with an emphatic longing never to see the maitre again. "'I believe he is not coming to-day,' said Woloda, looking up for a moment from his lesson-book. "'I hope he is not, please the Lord,' I answered, but in a despondent tone yet there he DOES come, I believe, all the same." "'Not he—why, that is a gentleman,' said Woloda, likewise looking out of the window. "'Let us wait till half-past two, and then ask St. Jerome if we may put away our books.' "'Yes, and wish them au revoir,' I added, stretching my arms, with the book clasped in my hands over my head. Having hitherto idled away my time, I now opened the book at the place where the lesson was to begin, and started to learn it. It was long and difficult and, moreover, I was in the mood when one's thoughts refused to be arrested by anything at all. Consequently, I made no progress. After our last lesson in history, which always seemed to me a peculiarly arduous and wearisome subject, the history-master had complained to St. Jerome of me because only two good marks stood to my credit in the register—a very small total. St. Jerome had then told me that if I failed to gain less than three marks at the next lesson, I should be severely punished. The next lesson was now imminent, and I confess that I felt a little nervous. So absorbed, however, did I become in my reading, that the sound of galoshes being taken off in the ante-room came upon me almost as a shock. I had just time to look up, when there appeared in the doorway, the servile and, to me, very disgusting face and form of the Master, clad in a blue frock-coat with brass buttons. Slowly, he set down his hat and books, and adjusted the folds of his coat—as though such a thing were necessary—and seated himself in his place. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, rubbing his hands, "'let us first of all repeat the general contents of the last lesson, after which I will proceed to narrate the succeeding events of the Middle Ages.' This meant say over the last lesson. While Woloda was answering the Master with the entire ease and confidence which come of knowing a subject well, I went aimlessly out on to the landing, and since I was not allowed to go downstairs, what more natural than that I should involuntarily turn towards the alcove on the landing? Yet before I had time to establish myself in my usual coin of vantage behind the door, I found myself pounced upon by Mimi, always the cause of my misfortunes. "'You here?' she said, looking severely, first at myself, and then at the maidservant's door, and then at myself again. I felt thoroughly guilty, firstly because I was not in the schoolroom, and secondly because I was in a forbidden place. So I remained silent, and, dropping my head, assumed a touching expression of contrition. "'Indeed, this is too bad,' Mimi went on. "'What are you doing here?' Still I said nothing. "'Well, it shall not rest where it is,' she added, tapping the banister with her yellow fingers. "'I shall inform the Countess.' It was five minutes to three when I re-entered the schoolroom. The Master, as though oblivious of my presence or absence, was explaining the new lesson to Woloda. When he had finished doing this, and had put his books together while Woloda went into the other room to fetch his ticket, the comforting idea occurred to me that perhaps the whole thing was over now, and that the Master had forgotten me. But suddenly he turned in my direction, with a malicious smile, and said as he rubbed his hands anew, "'I hope you have learnt your lesson?' "'Yes,' I replied. Would you be so kind, then, as to tell me something about St. Louis's crusade?" he went on, balancing himself on his chair, and looking gravely at his feet. "'Firstly, tell me something about the reasons which induced the French King to assume the cross.' Here he raised his eyebrows and pointed to the inkstand. Then explained to me the general characteristics of the crusade. Here he made a sweeping gesture with his hand, as though to seize hold of something with it and, lastly, expound to me the influence of this crusade upon the European States in general, drawing the copy-books to the left side of the table, and upon the French State in particular, drawing one of them to the right and inclining his head in the same direction. I swallowed a few times, coughed, bent forward, and was silent. Then, taking a pen from the table, I began to pick it to pieces, yet still said nothing. Allow me the pen. I shall want it," said the master. well Louis the er uh, the—er—saint—was—was was a very good and wise king—what—king! King. He took it into his head to go to Jerusalem, and handed over the reins of government to his mother. What was her name? but b b what belanka I laughed in a rather forced smile. "'Well, is that all you know?' he asked again, smiling. I had nothing to lose now, so I began chattering the first thing that came into my head. The Master remained silent as he gathered together the remains of the pen which I had left strewn about the table, looked gravely past my ear at the wall, and repeated from time to time, "'Very well, very well!' though I was conscious that I knew nothing whatever, and was expressing myself all wrong, I felt much hurt at the fact that he never either corrected or interrupted me. What made him think of going to Jerusalem? he asked at last, repeating some words of my own. Because—because—that is to say—my confusion was complete, and I relapsed into silence. I felt that, even if this disgusting history-master were to go on putting questions to me and gazing inquiringly into my face for a year, I should never be able to enunciate another syllable. After staring at me for some three minutes, he suddenly assumed a mournful cast of countenance, and said in an agitated voice to Woloda, who was just re-entering the room, "'Allow me the register. I will write my remarks.' He opened the book thoughtfully, and in his fine calligraphy marked five for Woloda for diligence and the same for good behaviour. Then, resting his pen on the line where my report was to go, he looked at me and reflected. Suddenly his hand made a decisive movement, and, behold, against my name stood a clearly marked One, with a full stop after it. Another movement, and in the behavior column there stood another One, and another full stop. Quietly closing the book, the master then rose and moved towards the door, as though unconscious of my look of entreaty, despair, and reproach. "'Michael Levianich, I said. "'No,' he replied, as though knowing beforehand what I was about to say. It is impossible for you to learn in that way. I am not going to earn my money for nothing." He put on his galoshes and cloak, and then slowly tied a scarf about his neck, to think that he could care about such trifles after what had just happened to me. To him it was all a mere stroke of the pen, but to me it meant the direst misfortune. "'Is the lesson over?' asked St. Jerome, entering. "'Yes.' "'And was the Master pleased with you?' "'Yes.' "'How many marks did he give you?' 5. And to Nicholas—I was silent. I think four, said Woloda. His idea was to save me for at least to-day. If punishment there must be, it need not be awarded while we had guests. Voyons, monsieur—St. Jerome was forever saying voyons—faites votre toilette et descendons." CHAPTER Twelve, THE KEY we had hardly descended and greeted our guests when luncheon was announced. Papa was in the highest of spirits, since for some time past he had been winning. He had presented Lubotshka with a silver tea-service, and suddenly remembered after luncheon that he had forgotten a box of bonbons, which he was to have, too. "'Why send a servant for it? You had better go, Koko,' he said to me jestingly. "'The keys are in the tray on the table, you know. Take them, and with the largest one open the second drawer on the right there you will find the box of bonbons. Bring it here. "'Shall I get you some cigars as well?' I said, knowing that he always smoked after luncheon. "'Yes, do. But don't touch anything else.' I found the keys, and was about to carry out my orders, when I was seized with a desire to know what the smallest of the keys on the bunch belonged to. On the table I saw, among many other things, a padlocked portfolio, and at once felt curious to see if that was what the key fitted. My experiment was crowned with success. The portfolio opened and disclosed a number of papers. Curiosity so strongly urged me also to ascertain what those papers contained, that the voice of conscience was stilled, and I began to read their contents. My childish feeling of unlimited respect for my elders, especially for papa, was so strong within me that my intellect involuntarily refused to draw any conclusions from what I had seen. I felt that papa was living in a sphere completely apart from, incomprehensible by, and unattainable for me, as well as one that was in every way excellent, and that any attempt on my part to criticize the secrets of his life would constitute something like sacrilege. For this reason the discovery which I made from papa's portfolio left no clear impression upon my mind, but only a dim consciousness that I had done wrong. I felt ashamed and confused. The feeling made me eager to shut the portfolio again as quickly as possible, but it seemed as though on this unlucky day I was destined to experience every possible kind of adversity. I put the key back into the padlock, and turned it round, but not in the right direction. Thinking that the portfolio was now locked, I pulled at the key, and—oh, horror—found my hand come away with only the top half of the key in it. In vain did I try to put the two halves together, and to extract the portion that was sticking in the padlock at last I had to resign myself to the dreadful thought that I had committed a new crime—one which would be discovered to-day as soon as ever Papa returned to his study. First of all, Mimi's accusation on the staircase, and then that one mark, and then this key—nothing worse could happen now. This very evening I should be assailed successively by Grandmama because of Mimi's denunciation, by St. Jerome because of the solitary mark, and by Papa because of the matter of this key yes, all in one evening. What on earth is to become of me? What have I done?" I exclaimed, as I paced the soft carpet. Well, I went on with sudden determination, what must come, must—that's all. And, taking up the bonbons and the cigars, I ran back to the other part of the house. The fatalistic formula with which I had concluded, and which was one that I often heard Nicola utter during my childhood, always produced in me, at the more difficult crises of my life, a momentarily soothing beneficial effect consequently when i re-entered the drawing-room i was in a rather excited unnatural mood yet one that was perfectly cheerful end of section three recording by bill borst